That is a good introduction. As we continue our sermon today, we are in the book, our sermon series, we're in the book of James again. And uh, let me, while you're turning there, let me open with a little story. We're in the fifth chapter. A man in a hot air balloon realized that he was lost. He reduced altitude and spotted a woman below. He descended a bit more and shouted, excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend I would meet him an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. And the woman below replied, you're in a hot air balloon hovering approximately 30 feet above the ground. You are between 40 and 41 degrees north latitude and between 59 and 60 degrees west longitude. Well, the hot air balloon guy in the hot air balloon said, you must be a programmer. I am, replied the woman. How did you know? Well, answered the balloonist, everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea what to make of your information. And the fact is, I'm still lost. Frankly, you've not been much help so far. Woman below responded, hmm, you must be a manager. I am, replied the balloonist, but how did you know? Well, said the woman, you don't know where you are or where you're going. You've risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. You made a promise which you have no idea how to keep, and you expect me to solve your problem. The fact is, you're in exactly the same position you were in before we met, but now somehow it's my fault. Some of y'all get that on the way home. The book of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. His name was James. Uh, He was the son of Joseph and Mary, written in the early 40s. He wrote primarily to Jews because that's all there was. There was Christian Jews at the time. And so he was writing to the early believers. Today we pick up in the fifth chapter of the seventh verse. I'll be reading mostly from the New King James Version. It'll also be on the screen. And it starts, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who will endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, neither by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Let's pray this morning. Father God, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for those that are here to hear your word. Lord, I know we make many mistakes, and often we sin even when we don't realize it. We ask that you forgive us. Lord, we ask that you would lead us in your word. And Lord, where I make a mistake, let them not hear it if I make one. Let them get out of this service and this sermon what you want them to get out of it. The things that will make us grow, Lord. That's what we look for. And we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God. And the church said, Amen. Our life principle today is, don't use patience and hardships as an excuse for sin. Follow through 
with your oaths. Number one, patience isn't an excuse to be lazy. James 5, 7 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Notice this section starts with a therefore. That always refers to whatever was therefore before it. Well, therefore what? Therefore what came before? So let's look real quick at the section right before it. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupt and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. These Christians were being oppressed. They were being cheated by the richer folks. We learned about that last week. They were themselves counted amongst the brethren, though. God addressed the rich before, and now He addresses those that have been cheated. He says to be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. What else have we heard? Well, if we go back to the first chapter, 20th verse, it says, Why? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be patient. We don't know how this is all going to shake out yet. We don't know how God's going to judge those doing the cheating, whether it's on the earth or after their death. We don't know. So we're told to be patient. Because when the Lord comes, then we will understand and we will see His righteousness revealed. Now, I personally believe that when the Lord comes for the Christian who has been cheated, it's not going to matter anymore. Why? Because we'll be with the Lord. These temporary trappings of this world, when compared to the presence of our Savior, is nothing. He goes on, he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Now, most of you know I am no farmer. Give me a computer, I can tear it apart and put it back together for you. Give me a hoe, I got no idea what I'm doing with it. Other than making a hole, sort of. Anyway, but one thing I know about farming and about a farmer While he's waiting for the abundance of the rain during the early and latter seasons, he doesn't just sit back and do nothing. No, farmers continue to work the land, take care of the animals and everything else they got to do while they wait. So is the Christian who is being patient in hard times. The Christian doesn't just say, I'm going to make my, take my marbles and go home and, and get a little sniddly attitude and walk away. No, they're continuing to work where God has placed them in the body of Christ. They are continuing to do evangelism, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of peace between God and man. They continue to point out sin and salvation. They don't give up. They don't walk out. They don't surrender to circumstances. They serve God until the day they die. That's what a Christian does. 
Speaking of working in the body, where have we seen that rhetoric before? And we might do this book next. I don't know, wherever the Lord leads me when we're done with James. But I'm going to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Now, this is out of the Berean Standard Bible. I just like how it read. The body is a unit, though it is composed of many parts. And although its parts are many, they all form one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given one spirit to drink. For the body does not consist of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the members of the body, every one of them, according to His design. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. Nor can the head say to the feet, I do not need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we consider less honorable, we treat with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with special modesty. Whereas our presentable parts have no such need. But God has composed the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its members should have mutual concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a member of. God has placed each of us, me and you, in this local body of believers for a purpose. He has a job for each of us to do. The question is, is what are you going to do? Well, you need to figure it out. What it is that you're being called to do. I don't care how old you are. What can you do now? It may not be your season for singing. It may not be your season for playing. But what can you do now in the body of Christ that Christ has gifted you? Now, most of you know because of me sitting over there, I can't sing. I try, thank God he said, make a joyful noise. Not a good one. But I can't sing. Guess what? I can't do finances like Vivian does. I can't do a whole lot of carpentry. I try, but that's not my skill set. Nor is it my calling in the body of Christ. I'm called as a pastor. Joe is called to sing. Vivian and Karen are called to make sure the finances are in order. My wife is currently called to work children's church. Al is called to be a deacon. We're all called somewhere. We are all servants of the church, of God's body. And there are many others that I didn't list in here. I still love you. I just didn't want to spend 40 minutes listing off everything you do. Where are you called? Find it. Do it. Someone in here may be called to do Sunday school for youth or even children. Find out what you are called to do and do it right here where God has placed you in the body. Going back to our main scripture, James 5.8 says, You too 
meaning you as well. Be patient and strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Now, what does it mean to strengthen your heart? It means to be assured that no matter what's going on around us, God is still on his throne. We don't get to see the big picture of time and history, but guess what? He does because he designed it from the beginning to the end. Therefore, we can rest our minds in him, trust what he says. If he says he's going to do a thing, it will be done. Just not in our time most of the time. So what should our response be? Well, we talked about your mind, didn't we? We talked about it. 1 Peter 1.13, if you remember that series. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the form of lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Hey, I got some news for you. You ready? It's a secret. I'm going to tell you a secret. It's not a very well-kept secret, but it's a secret. Jesus is coming back. And he expects us to strengthen our hearts and our minds to be stayed on him. This we should do with passion. Our prayers need to be, Lord, until you return, how can I serve you? How can I love your people? Oh God, what in your word do I need to put into practice? Teach me what true holiness means before you. I surrender all. If that isn't the passion of your heart, then I got some news for you. Are you sure you're his? Are you sure you belong to him? Does he know you? Does he call you friend? Oh, you can call him whatever you want, but does he call you friend? Now, if this used to be you, you used to have that passion, but it's gone the wayside, then perhaps you need to follow the advice that Jesus gave the church at Laodicea. Revelation three eighteen and 19. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That's one of them ouch hallelujahs. You get the ouch now and the hallelujah later after you repent. Here's a little story for you. Hang on. After service, a stranger approached the pastor and said, I'd like you to pray for my hearing. Well, the pastor placed his hands on the man's ears, and he got down to it. He prayed, and he prayed passionate, and he prayed earnestly, and he prayed loud. And then he said, how's your hearing now? Looking surprised, the man said, well, it's not until Tuesday. Don't misunderstand what God is telling you today. Don't misunderstand the things of God. Make sure that as you find your place in the body, that you don't hear wrong and end up in the wrong place. Make sure you hear right. Number two, don't use hard times as an excuse to walk away. Many do. James 5, 9 through 11. Do not grumble against one another, brethren. 
lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. James, first of all, tells us, don't complain about someone else. Don't complain about one another. Last week, we said, don't slander one another. He's reiterating what he'd previously written. James had just penned about judging someone's salvation and their standing with God. And only the self-righteous would do that to another because they aren't aware of their own sin. Now James reiterates that statement. As we wait on God, let us not become self-righteous and outwardly focused as the Pharisees were. Let us remain in humility before a holy God. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. It ain't my lane. We stay in our lane. You stay in your lane and let God be God and every man a liar. James 5, 10, and 11. Brothers, as an example, I'm reading out of the Brian Standard, by the way. Brothers, as an example of patience and affliction, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. See how blessed we consider those who have persevered You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. God reminds us of all the afflictions that the prophet suffered. You see, James, he already knows what the prophet suffered and the people he was writing to knew. A lot of us today don't know because we don't read the Old Testament. We really should. Those prophets, they were chaste. They were stoned to death. They ran in terror for their lives. And one had to lay naked on his side for a very long period of time. Let's talk about a couple of specifics. God commanded the prophet Isaiah to walk around naked for three years to symbolize Assyria's upcoming domination of Egypt and Ethiopia. By the way, when it says naked, it means his long jones, okay? The minor prophet Micah was was tasked with proclaiming prophecies against Samaria. Yeah, that's not one I would want. But that was his task from the Lord. Samaria symbolizing the kingdom of Israel and Jerusalem representing the king of Judah to the entire world. He was so grieved and devastated by what God had foretold, had told him, that he stripped off his clothes and publicly bemoaned the punishment that was to come upon them. We see this king kind of thing today. And we call, the, we call the mental health professionals. Thank God he doesn't deal with us like this today. At least he hasn't told me to run around in my underwear. Thank the Lord. If he does, y'all call a psychologist. However, a time is coming that to just proclaim Jesus as Lord of all things, you're going to be locked up. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be martyred. It's been foretold in Scripture, and it's happening in the past, and it's happening now around the world. Only the news ain't telling you about it as much as they should. There are countries today that they will martyr you for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Guess what? It's going to happen here, eventually. The more I watch, the closer I've noticed it's become. 
Now James, he brings up the one guy I don't want to really think about all that often. I'm sure you don't either. He brings up Job. This prophet experienced his family dying. His first wife told him to curse God and die. And then his friends told him the same thing. He lost everything. I mean everything. He lost his health. But then God restored it back to him. This is the extremity, the extreme of what God could call you to. Did you know that? For some of us in the room, He may call us to this kind of scenario. But in heaven, we get to be with Him, which is so much better. Much, much better. And lastly, don't excuse yourself from oaths. It is a sin. James 5.12 But above all, my brethren... Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest ye fall into judgment. During this time, it was common for Jews to say that if they swear an oath by earth or heaven, it wasn't a binding oath. It was just something to get over on the next person. However, if you swore by God, that was a binding oath. James says, don't do that garbage. This verse is not about swearing as in using curse words, though we really shouldn't do that either, according to Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. It's about bolstering our claims of the truth. That's what these guys were doing. You ever said, I swear to God? Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Not just out of some old fashioned reasoning. It's a way of saying, I'm not lying. But you see, Jesus always calls us to the harder thing. Think about it. Remember when he said, you have heard it said, do not take another man's wife, but I tell you, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've sinned already. But you see, Jesus wants what we say and do to be so pure, so trustworthy, that when you say something, that it can be believed without any need to say, I swear, I'm not lying. They know you're not lying, because you got a track record of truth. When we speak and say a thing, it should be able to be trusted implicitly. You know what that's called? No idle words. No idle words. And what did Jesus say about idle words? Well, Matthew 12, 36 says, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. During this time, it was common for Jews to say if they swear an oath by earth, it's not binding. It's not binding. Jesus calls us to the higher thing. James writes to directly contradict this kind of thinking, this kind of speaking, We know that it used to be in our country that our word was our bond. What we said, we meant. We used to call it handshake deals. That's changed. People give their word for things they have no business giving their word for. Then if someone falls, they just walk away. They just walk away. Even on written contracts, they do this now. They just walk away. Here's an example. Let's take some people's ideas about credit cards. 
Now he's gone from preaching to meddling, I know. You can stone me later. Yes? Let me ask you a question. If you have a credit card, do you have the money to pay it? If the answer is yes, is there some financial reason that you can't pay what you said you would pay? If the answer is no, at that point, you've broken your oath. You've broken your oath. You told someone you were going to do whatever. Fix a house, do a roof, fix an AC, whatever. You call up and say you can't do it or you just let it go by and nothing ever happens. Has something come up? Was there sickness? Was there death? Were you broken down in a car or something else? If the answer is no, then you've broken your oath. Remember, these examples are for those that have no good reason to break their oath. They shouldn't have made a promise to begin with. For example, and I'm going to get a little personal. I've had type 1 diabetes now for 28 years. Did you know it takes an unfortunate toll on my body? It's a chronic illness. And thank God it hasn't hindered me too much. I'm able to minister, teach, and preach, as well as work full-time as a teacher, and travel pretty good distances, and be involved in my daughter's school, as well as on the Band Parent Association. I also am able to sit on our school advisory board, representing the other teachers, and have a say in what we do as a school without too much concern. According to my doctor, the diabetes at this point is well-controlled with an A1C of 6.9, for those of you that know what that means. I have been at times in my life uncontrolled and was not able to do a quarter of those things. I'm doing pretty well because it's God's will. And if God is willing, I'll be able to continue this way the rest of my life. Now, all of that to say, when I say I'm going to do something, it is always with a caveat that I am healthy enough to do that thing at that time. And I'm not having what I call an attack. Even at this time, there are days when it sticks its ugly head up and says, nope, you're not doing that today. I'm blessed that doesn't happen more than it does and doesn't happen too often, but it does happen. For example, some of you may have noticed I wasn't here on Wednesday. I'm sure that was talked about and prayed for. But that was a day the night before my sugars were very high. I didn't sleep. But what did my happy self do with blood glucose sugars over 280? Something I shouldn't have done. And high, you know, hindsight is 2020. I pushed myself to go to the school. I spent the day completely out of it, hoping I would get better. Guess what? That didn't happen. I had to call and have Al fill in for me. I felt completely out of my body and exhausted. I was dozing off while I was teaching a lesson. When the kids could tell. I had a headache that was bordering on a migraine and I went home and slept till the next morning and then I was fine. God is good. All that to say exactly what God told us through James earlier. James 4.13 Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there. Buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. If it is God's will for me to do a thing, I will do it. If you know you won't be able to do something, don't tell people that you can do it. 
it's dishonest, and it's unrighteous. Just to reiterate, we don't use patience and hardship as excuses for sin, and we follow through with what we say we're going to do with our oaths. As the ladies come...